Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Hi, and good morning. This is Lindsay Cole sitting here with Amy Bochelle discussing breast cancer awareness. Obviously, October is upon us, and we want to talk to some live breast cancer survivors. And I consider Amy a very good friend and warrior, someone who I personally look up to. So we're going to talk to Amy today about a challenge that she actually started here in Terrace Park, but it started way before Amy was diagnosed with breast cancer. So Amy, welcome this morning. Thank you for joining me. Let's just get into it. What is the Pink Lemonade Stand? Pink Lemonade Stand Challenge, put simply, is a way for us to bring awareness and raise money for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. We do that the same way that any kid having a lemonade stand on a corner is raising money for whatever they might do, but the child that started our initiative wanted to stop breast cancer because she saw, sorry, it already gets me emotional because I have a daughter. She saw her mom going through treatment for stage two breast cancer, and she wanted to do something to make a difference. So she was seven years old and her mother, I assume at the time was right around our age. Well, actually you were much younger when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Talk a little bit about where it started and now it's a national Nationally recognized initiative. So it was Bryn Rhodes, who was the seven year old. Kim, her mom, Kim Rhodes, had breast cancer and they were living on the East Coast at that time and she wanted to do something. So they just invited friends and family to do a pink lemonade stand. I believe it was Fourth of July weekend. So summertime, not your normal raise money for breast cancer month. That's actually one thing that I'm so thankful for and that I think is so important about this initiative. Anyone can have a lemonade stand. Right. And October isn't the only time that women are affected by breast cancer and that we need awareness. Very true. I'm thankful for October. I love it because more people will listen and more people want to talk and more women are thinking about it. Actually, my mom, the first time she was diagnosed, her breast cancer was found in October in her treatment. She had this lemonade stand, and they raised so much money, and they were so excited that they wanted to do more. And Kim is a go-getter, and um, I'm so thankful for her passion behind this. So she did research on on who are some of the top-rated and most reliable nonprofits so that we can make a difference. There are so many great nonprofits to support women while they're going through, to get to treatment, to pay bills— Things that we do need and that women going through it, it debilitates your entire life. So I think having a variety of ways to support women going through breast cancer is very important. And I personally, even leading, helping lead the Pink Lemonade Stand Challenge, I support all of these other nonprofits as well. But what Kim, as a lawyer in her other profession, researched was how are we going to make a difference for the future and research Right. is the only answer besides God. Right. <laughs> it's miracles in research and miracles in research. Right? The hashtag for the Pink Lemonade Stand Challenge is be the end. Hashtag be the end. Yes. So you're raising money or funds for breast cancer research that will lead to prevention and the cure that will end breast cancer for the next generation that has to face it. Yes. So you're now the executive director nationally? Yes. Or, okay. Yes, this is a national nonprofit based originally in 
New Jersey and Pennsylvania. I believe it's New Jersey that uh, the five hundred one c three. But Kim has now relocated to Palos Verdes outside of LA in California. The one thing I was going to say that was very important and that is a difficult but a high priority for us is that one hundred percent of what we receive goes to research. So wow. Kim okay. and I do not have a salary. We are both volunteering. We're both, and again, this is a this is a place I get emotional and passionate. We're both doing this for our daughters and for the women that we have met since starting and the women that we know are going through terrible battles and need need a cure, need an answer. The women right. that both of us have lost in our families and friends to breast cancer. Well, so we 100- all at least know someone who has yes. been affected by it. And you're right, it's such a tragedy. It affects so many people. Let's talk a little bit about your personal story. Obviously, you're very passionate, but you not only fought breast cancer once, you fought it twice. Right. And you were diagnosed very early on. Tell us a little bit about that journey, because I think people need to understand that when I think of breast cancer, I just turned 40. Well, not just a year (laughs) ago, I turned 40. That was my call to action at 40 was to get mammogram. And so I think it's more important for everyone, all women, to be aware, even if you have no history or you know genetic history or know of any genetic history, to be active or proactive about breast cancer awareness, how to prevent it, and how to find it. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how you first found breast cancer. So one important thing, I think, for all women to know is that anyone can do genetic screening. Research has, especially in the last... I'm not a researcher, but I would say in the last 10 years from what my awareness personally just with this disease has been, it has come so far and they know so much more that at the beginning of my journey, I was even given wrong information by my own OBGYN because they didn't understand the genetic testing. So at 29, I asked to get the testing because early on, I had a cousin who was on top of all of this research. Her mom had breast cancer, my aunt. So she knew about it before I did. I was in my 20s and she was about 10 years older. So she found out that she had, I believe she had two of the genes. I only have one of them, but she had BRCA and I believe PALB2. So for any women familiar, these acronyms will make sense. It sounds like I'm throwing around a bunch of letters, but these are two at well, this I point think, now more well-known. I think the BRCA, I think the term that I've always heard is BRCA, Yeah, but the person who sort of put that on the map was Angelina Jolie. And no one had really ever heard anything about people or women being super aggressive about having a double mastectomy up until that point. And that was a really bold statement. And she was really honest about it. And I think she was really open about it. So it opened everybody's eyes to that and to the stigma of it. Yes. So I think that's important. So those sort of genetic codes are important for you to point out. But you said you were 29 when you were first diagnosed. No. So I wasn't 29. At 29, I asked my OBGYN because I knew I had family members that had the gene. I also knew at that point my mom had already had breast cancer twice as well. So the first time my mom had breast cancer, she only did a lumpectomy. And then I believe it was five years later, the other breast found to have cancer. So when that happened, I sort of made a mental note that, like you said, when I turned 40, I made a mental note that by the time I'm 40, I'll have a prophylactic mastectomy, which is 
having a mastectomy preventatively. Right. Even if I didn't need it, even if I didn't have breast cancer at that time, because I just, I literally watched my mom code and almost die because of her treatment and because of breast cancer. So anyway, when I was 29, I asked and my OBGYN told me to wait and told me that I didn't need to get genetic testing. Now okay. looking back on it, I, I wish I would have fought him a little more on it, but he was a personal friend, and so I just trusted him, and I thought he knew. And okay. This is one point. Advocate for yourself. Um, if there's something always. you yes. think you need or have a reasonable request, getting a blood test is not something that really would would have put my doctor out, and it was available. I knew it was available. My cousin already had it done. And this is, is this something that insurance companies now are – accepting it's more acceptable it's much more now i mean i was willing to pay cash at that point for it because it was that scary if you have a known family history and i know that there are even nonprofits now that off the top of my head i don't have the information of where to send people but through being involved with this nonprofit, i get a lot of information and i follow a lot of breast cancer related pages. There's a lot that will cover it, even if your insurance doesn't, that you can get free genetic testing, especially during the month of October. In the last few years, I've seen different I think it's important for listeners to know, because that is always something that stops anyone from going to the doctor, whether or not they have health insurance or not. And I know that access is getting easier, but this is something that we need to bring awareness. If this is another nonprofit that maybe covers that, that's something that that needs to be out there so that women have the access they need to be able to have these preventative testing. Maybe that's your next challenge. One thing I'll say with that and with my personal story, I was then diagnosed at 31. We'll get to that. I switched doctors and the next doctor was like, why haven't you been tested? You're the most high risk you could be. Go to the end of the hallway and have a blood test like right now. Let's stop this appointment. It came back that I was positive for the PALB2 gene. And because I'm married to a radiologist who was also friends with this other doctor. That saved your life, yes. literally. Yes. He told him, I, w- I would really like you to order a mammogram. I know she's only 31 years old, but let's have a baseline because he knows how important that is. Right. And wanted to be able to see the changes. In none of our minds was the thought of having breast cancer at that point just because I had the gene. PALB2, it raises your risk significantly. I believe it's close to like... 70 to 80 percent wow. a chance of okay. getting breast cancer in your lifetime. I just happened to already have it. Got <laughs> and it. I didn't realize that until we did that mammogram. And that's when they found it at 31. Okay. Just because I switched doctors. Now, is this something that you had you done a self breast exam? Would you have been able to feel for that? I was doing self breast exams. Oh, <laughs> so to answer okay. your question, breast cancer grows or starts in two different ways, either in the ducts of your breasts, like okay. the milk ducts lining, or in the lobules, which is where the milk is made. Mine was within the ducts. There was no mass. That's interesting. I didn't know that. You're educating <laughs> me right now, probably amongst all the other listeners. I wasn't aware of that. Okay. I, I just assumed if you're doing regular self-breast exams, you can catch breast cancer. I wasn't aware that if it's in your ducts, you're not going to be able to find it. And that's at an early stage. It'll continue to grow to a size that I might have been able to, but it also could have already spread to my lymph nodes and to around areas around my body. So the type of breast cancer that I had, that I have had, was invasive ductal carcinoma. The early stage of that is DCIS, ductal carcinoma in 
Institute, <laughs> but you don't really need that name. All that to say it was very early and it was within the ducks. But the scary thing and the thing I'm very thankful for, because of my history, what I did, some would consider radical, having a complete double bilateral mastectomy, thinking I only had one spot from okay. what they found and from what they biopsied. That was not true. Okay. I had, I believe it was over seven different spots within my ducts in three out of the four quadrants of my breasts. We would have missed half of it if I only got a lumpectomy. But how would you not know that if you were getting a mammogram? Is that something Mammograms don't-, don't see everything. Also, th- this is very <laughs> sorry. This is very important because women are being missed because of this issue. When you're younger, you have dense breast tissue. If you're ever told in a mammogram that you have dense breast tissue, part of that is code for we can't see because it hides it because they look similar. Well, that's on terrifying a on a lot it of is. different levels. I don't know the correlation why it raises your risk of breast cancer if you have dense breast tissue as well. Again, I don't know why. And also, as you age, they can become less dense. But I was 31 years old, and I happened to have the worst kind of tissue for finding it because it hides it. So you fought this once, Amy, and then you found it again? And you had already had a double mastectomy. Yes. So I, I am very rare. I mean, honestly, well, I'm, you are rare. What I'm, <laughs> what I'm about to say, it's really every breast cancer survivor's nightmare. Honestly, because when you're told you're okay, you're in the clear, and when you're told that you've done above and beyond more than right. than you really needed to, because I technically was stage zero, and I did the most extreme. There were no signs of any spread to my lymph nodes. And so from what I was told, I dodged a bullet. We were done. I didn't have to do chemo or radiation because there was nothing left to to get or to do. So you were 31 when you were diagnosed, and then you went through this process of double mastectomy. And reconstruction. And reconstruction. Which might be a story for another day. Yeah. Because I've since had my implants removed, they were also recalled. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a different story for a different day. Yeah. But then at this point, how many birthdays had gone by? By the time I was 34 was when I found out. The next time, but I'll say when I was 33, the year before, I felt something on my implant. And I had been having some weird like inflammatory kind of symptoms I talked to a lot of women. They're like, well, what if this thing or yes. what if, well, what we if I'm not paying be, attention to my body? Yeah. But these weren't mild. It was I felt like I wanted to rip the skin off of my chest on a daily basis. <laughs> so it, it wasn't not noticeable. And I don't even know exactly what was causing that. All I knew is that I felt like something was wrong. Something wasn't right. Yeah. And then I felt a bump. I also had a lymph node that was swollen But I was told I did an ultrasound and mammogram, and the lymph node was within a normal range. And the bump on my implant on, like, the front and center of my breast, of my fake breast, was said to be a sebaceous cyst. So then what? But just something didn't feel right to me, and it just was really bothering me. And all these symptoms kept happening, just different weird things, like... The lymph node would go down and then a different one in that same armpit. And it would always only be on that side that I had had cancer before. Fast forward to meeting with my plastic surgeon for a follow-up and just having an amazing plastic surgeon who was very much supportive and on my side and my husband's. He asked if I just 
wanted to electively have it removed, that he could do it as a cosmetic procedure. And it would just be a cyst removal, which is commonly done anyway. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they can become painful if they get too big, even when they're benign. My husband, knowing that I was very much uncomfortable and feeling like something was wrong, even if medically all the scans... Oh, insurance did deny an MRI, which would have told me, but it got denied. So for five months, we went back and forth about trying to get the MRI or deciding if we did something else. When we had it removed, and this was just a cosmetic outpatient procedure. Yeah. Again, no one really expecting anything. Well, they weren't. But in my head, I was still questioning. We had it removed, and a couple days later, my plastic surgeon called me back, barely able to get the words out because I think he was more devastated from trying to reassure me and thinking it really was just a cyst in my hair follicle in my skin because that's what it looked that is what it looked like on the scan told me it was invasive ductal carcinoma again yes okay so the first one wasn't invasive so there was possible lymph node involvement and it was in the skin not like skin cancer but just breast cancer that had kind of attached how does this happen the naked eye for the best breast surgeon in the world can't see every microscopic breast tissue that she got. I mean, my surgery actually ended up going hours longer because where I was more thin, it was harder to separate the skin from the breast tissue because if there's a layer of fat in between, it's easier to kind of cut through it. But my body type just being more thin, it was very difficult. The surgery was difficult. So basically, it's probably just that there were a few breast cells left over right there, just right next to my skin, probably that you couldn't even, wouldn't even be able to detect or see. So I'm assuming you had your implants removed. Yes. And then you started what next? Because the first time you didn't do radiation chemo, right? Right. I actually had to do chemo first. Okay. So the implants I wanted, I wanted everything out as soon as possible, as soon as we found that out. I already knew at that point, and I had been researching getting them removed anyway because of what I was finding following some breast implant illness stories and women that I knew. And just in my gut, I knew I don't want these in my body. And I could feel a difference. And I had, because of the type of invasive ductal carcinoma, it was HER2 positive, which, again, for breast cancer survivors, they'll hear that and know those those used to be very scary words. Uh, Development from the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and a treatment Herceptin now to treat them makes it so much better, but it's a very aggressive form of breast cancer. It used to be pretty much a death sentence. So we had to start chemo right away before surgery could even happen. They removed that mass that was there Uh (laughs) unknowingly just as a cosmetic procedure, Um, but not knowing if I had clear margins, meaning if it was still around it in there. Backstory of all of this Meeting you, Amy, I have a seven-year-old, and mm-hmm. I know Hunter Grace is seven as well. So I'm trying to do the math here in my she brain. Was <laughs> she was four. Yeah. So you have super aggressive breast cancer, number two, mm-hmm. and you have a four-year-old, which Hunter Grace is clearly, she's a miracle child. Yeah. And you have a four-year-old. So obviously, you talk a lot about a prevention and awareness, but you're, this is your life at this point. So I'm sure you're... There's a lot as a mom that you're going through at this point. So honestly, that was the number one thought in my head was, how can I keep this from affecting her? How 
I'll fight any way I can to stay and be here and be healthy for her. But also, <laughs> previously, I was a family therapist and worked with children and figuring out how to make it as positive and the least traumatic that it could be for her was what I started researching. And so I did cold capping for three of my treatments, which is where you're basically wearing dry ice on your head. Okay. It's not dry ice, but it's these ice packs that have a gel that's like colder than normal And what does freezing. that do? So it stops the blood flow to your hair follicles so that the chemo doesn't go to them so that you can save your hair. Okay. Because the one thing <laughs> I knew, this is kind of a funny story, but I'd cut my hair short once when she was two years old. Yeah. So I had hair, like long hair past my shoulders. That's all she knew me as. And I just decided I wanted, well, actually, my hair was so damaged because I had dyed it blonde and I just have really fine whatever hair. But anyway, I cut it short. And this is while I was healthy. I'm actually so thankful for this. But the first thing when she saw me afterwards, she was very upset about it. And she said, I want you to go back and try again. Yeah. You messed up your hair. <laughs> well, kids don't like change. Yeah. yeah. You moved her apple cart. You changed yeah. your hair. I remember when my son was little, when I would wear my hair in a ponytail, he would take the hair tie out. Yeah. He would want it removed. He didn't like it, but he wanted my hair down. So like just the slightest change is tough. And the yeah. fact that you're actively fighting breast cancer and you're trying to save your hair for your daughter, this just proves like moms are made of Teflon. I honestly don't know how you how you do it or you did it and you're still doing it because Hunter Grace, I've seen her when it comes to just the local action that you've done. And obviously you're in remission, you're healthy and you're well, thank God. And she's seen you go through this and did your first pink lemonade stand challenge here locally at the Terrace Park Pool. Mm -hmm. And then we've done several at 50 West. They've partnered mm -hmm. you with you to do the pink lemonade cans, which were awesome. Yeah, we've um, done them out in Hollywood. She did one at the right. Griffith Park at the Hollywood sign. Well, and this is something that Hunter Grace has embraced, but even you've gotten like our local Girl Scout troop involved yeah. and you've sort of, it's a, the community has rallied around you. And yes. that's one thing that's really remarkable and inspirational. Talk a little bit about, you said prevention, and then what's next for the Pink Lemonade Stand Challenge, and for you, yes. for that matter. So I will say, dovetailing, going off what we were just talking about with my perspective with Hunter Grace, that goes right in line with why we do this and why I wanted to get involved. So I saw this story on the Today Show the first time I was recovering from one of my surgeries. Okay. Not when I was in treatment, but my when Hunter Grace was a year and a half old, I can remember sitting in the rocking chair and either holding her or her wanting to run around our family room. But I was just so weak. I had to try to like contain her to that room, TV on and toys. And I saw this story of Bryn, and it was just so joyful and hopeful to me because... A cure is my hope for Hunter Grace. A cure right. is the hope for all of our girls and even boys. Men are getting breast cancer at an increased rate as well. And just in the United States, it's every two minutes that a woman is diagnosed. Wow. And in the world, it's every 14 seconds. Wow. Seeing something that takes that very scary statistic, yeah. but then turns it into we can be a part of the change and we can do something fun. It's not just, oh, breast cancer and sickness, something that is just overwhelming and 
traumatic. It takes it and turns it into something fun because what kid doesn't want to have a lemonade stand when they're preschool, kindergarten, whatever, even up to like 10, 11 years old. And actually Hunter Grace saw a friend of mine do that for me while I was going through the first treatment in Lexington. We were living outside of Lexington and a good friend who is also a survivor, she organized really unbeknownst to me, all of the work that she put into it, but in my honor did a lemonade stand and she's an interior designer. So it was amazing. Oh, and adorable. It was over the top. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. So cute. So then after that, Hunter Grace wanted to do her own lemonade stand. We had to wait until I was a little bit healthier. All I could really do that day is show up and it took everything in me because it was one of my bad chemo days, like three days after chemo. Just showing up, Amy, is that's half the battle. And the fact that you're doing that with breast cancer for your daughters, it's amazing. Yeah, but it was really Casey that got the ball rolling like within my head within our family, Hunter Grace being inspired by them. And she had yeah. a little girl who was a little bit older than Hunter Grace that, you know, she thought was cool, even at right. four years old. And then the pandemic hit. So we had to wait. And then we relocated to Terrace Park. Yeah, it was that joy and that hope. And that was the same thing that got us through the hardest moments of my treatment. The day that we had to finally shave my head, because even with the cold caps, I was just still losing my hair in patches. I knew it was going to be scary and hard, but instead, Hunter Grace was a part of helping shave my head, which she thought was hysterical, and we just turned it into something fun, and then we went and got ice cream, and you have to be intentional about putting joy and choosing joy in the hard moments, not just focusing on why it's hard, but also just being together and making good out of it. So it actually is one of my most cherished memories, even though it was hard. I think because it should have been so much harder and it ended up being so funny. I'm well, kids so have the ability to do <laughs> do that for us sometimes. Yeah. The call to action, I think for us, like I said, I was diagnosed at 31. So personally, my goal, and this is between Hunter Grace and I, we decided this at first, our goal was going to be $6,000 because she was six years old at the Got time it. that we were starting to do these yeah. ourselves. Well, we got to $7,000 because of Terrace Park and family and friend support in our first stand. So great. Terrace yes. Park always shows up. I do have a, a big family here in Cincinnati that was also part of it. I want to give them credit as well because right. they have been so instrumental in increasing that hope and helping us to, to make a difference. It's really been all the community around me that has made the difference. It's not really been me or Hunter Grace. And I think that it is, takes a village. Yeah. Yeah. That is the most encouraging thing about it. And some of them were strangers at the time who have become close support and community, even you. Yes, that's um, when true. It first started. I did step up. You're yeah. right. Right now we're at $18,000. My goal, honestly, so I would say a call to action. If anyone listening to this is inspired and wants to join Hunter Grace, I want to get to $31,000 by the end of October. The goal nationwide, we need more stands. We need more people to get involved. Even if you make $20, it makes a difference. Go to our page. Okay, and how do we do that? Where do we find you? Yes, so if you want to get information on how to do it, you can print a sign, you can... Oh, okay, all the things. QR codes and things. If you want to do even like a poster-making party at your school, that's one thing we really want to get more kids and more schools involved to understand 
number one, about being able to make a difference in your community and it's important. empower. Yeah. So many kids are affected by this because they have moms who have it. That's yes. the thing that breaks my heart the most. Yes. It's not just one in eight women will be affected by this in her lifetime. How many of them are in age with young children? We yes. can empower our children as well. And that's one thing that has made Hunter Grace stronger and better. And I would have never chosen it or wanted it for her. But I am thankful because it helps her to see that even when things get scary and overwhelming, what can we do to make a difference? The solution. PinkLemonadeStandChallenge.org. All the information, all the links right there on the first page, how to make a stand. You can also go directly to the giving site for our team, which is give.bcrf.org. If you want the nationwide team, it's forward slash Pink Lemonade Stand Challenge. If you want Hunter Grace's and my team page, it's just forward slash cure. So okay. give.bcrf.org forward slash cure. And then, of course, hashtag be the end. Yes, hashtag be the end. And that's also the Breast Cancer Research Foundation's their mission, their motto. That's why they only focus on research. Metastatic research especially, they're the number one funder. That is where we need our money to go. That is where women, men, that's where people are dying is okay. when it's metastatic. That's where we don't have a cure. If okay. you catch breast cancer early, you can live the rest of your life with it. Obviously, it'll still affect you because every survivor knows it's always in the back of your head and right. you have follow-up appointments and checkups. But metastatic research is Just what is going to stop this. And okay. Amy, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. thank you for being part of the solution and the awareness around breast cancer. And for any of our listeners out there, please make sure you check out the pinklemonadestandchallenge.org. I will say for the month of October, we are very excited and thankful for the support of Vineyard Vines. They're going to host stands across the country, oh, wow. as well as okay. Lily Pulitzer. Vineyard Vines will be hosting it in all of their stores. And I believe the date that they have chosen is the 8th, October 8th. Okay. But between, it could be really any time, it doesn't have to be October, but <laughs> between the month of October, I believe the 8th and the 15th, in both Vineyard Vines and Lily Pulitzer stores, they will be hosting pink lemonade stands across the country okay. to join us and partner and be the end. Well, everyone, your call to action is go to Vineyard Vines or Lily Pulitzer or attend a pink lemonade stand challenge yourself. Amy, thank you. God bless. And we'll talk to you all soon. Take care. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.